the number you have dialed is not in service at this time. Sure as God made green apples, someday the Chicago Cubs are going to be in the World Series. And maybe sooner than we think. Welcome to the State News Sports Podcast. I'm Stephen Oshansky, and before we even get into this, after 71 long years, I can finally say it, I can yell it out, I can sing it. I only have to suffer through 20 of those 71 long years. The Cubs, my Cubs, the beautiful Chi-Town Chicago Cubs are going to the World Series just like I told you they would on this radio show. Casey didn't believe me, didn't think they'd ever get there, but guess what they did, baby? And they're going to do it, and they're going to do it in Cleveland. They're going to take one from Cleveland and win three at home, and that's going to be it. They're going to win the World Series, baby, and for the first time in 107, eight years, whatever been, however long it's been, I'm going to celebrate, and you're going to watch me do it right from that couch, and you're going to hear me from East Lansing because it's going to be a glorious, glorious day. I don't even know if I want to talk about anything else, but we got a great show for you today. We're going to discuss the Cubs and Indians, what's going to be a beautiful World Series, not just because the Cubs are going to win it, but because they have two phenomenal, I believe two phenomenal teams in this World Series, and you know who else we're talking to today? It's not just Casey. I ain't just talking to Casey today. And I haven't even talked yet. (laughs) Yeah, and he doesn't even get to talk yet because I'm just on a roll. You know who's talking? We're talking with the great Lansing Sports Hall of Famer, a guy who's won multiple writing titles in the state of Michigan, who's who's written over 100 pieces for national magazines. That's Jack Ebling of Jack Ebling, The Drive with Jack Ebling on 92.1 The Team. That's on the FM stations. You hear him all the time in Lansing. We'll talk MSU football with him, and we'll also break down a little bit of what the hell's going on with Michigan State against Maryland this season. It's pretty much a dumpster fire. So, Casey, go ahead now. I had my intro. Yeah, it was long. It was breathless, but go ahead. Well, uh, you know, there was a football game on Saturday as much as uh, you didn't want to watch through it because, let's face it, there was a lot more exciting sporting events going on uh, talking about the Cubs. And, yeah, I mean, I don't know what else there really is to say. I mean, MSU has dropped their fifth game in a row, first time since 1991. Stephen, when's the last time MSU's dropped six in a row? Uh, I couldn't tell you. Yeah, but it's going to happen again. <laughs> but it's going to happen, um, for sure. Because you know what's going to happen? I've said it once, and I'll say it again, that U of M, is, uh, they're going to step on. MSU's throats. The, the, MSU is about to pay for ten years of just sin and getting away with all of these wins. And to to the average fan, to to the, all the U of M slappies, order is about to be restored in Ann Arbor. Oh wow! I, every everything for how long? Everything is coming that's back to an equilibrium. Question. I mean, that's that's a question for another day um, because that might not even last till the end of the season. Um, I'm not 100 percent confident that they're going to beat Ohio State. Uh, but with that being said, I mean, even Ohio State, they got upset by Penn State. Right. And the moment I let's let's talk about the, let's break down the game a little bit. The moment I lost faith in Michigan State is you got the wind at your back and it's going towards the goal. You know, it's going towards that field goal. And you got a kicker who can make those 40 yards, and especially with the wind in the back, wind in his back. And they pull a fake, fake punt, a fake punt. We have 34 35 yards to go to the end zone to score a touchdown and then what was where that was play was supposed to end up 
and you you only get four yards with your kicker. These are plays that worked when there's magic going on. These plays don't work when you're two and five. When you're two and four, this don't this they don't work. And that's the moment where I, I realize that there's going to be some coaching changes and this year. That D'Antonio, I I don't know what he is trying. You uh, I I mean, that wasn't even the play that necessarily aggravated me. I mean, I wasn't happy with it, but. The thing that really made me mad were all the turnovers. The turnovers and the penalties. I mean, Riley Bolo can't just go out and get three personal fouls in the first quarter alone. Well, and that, I, that 96-yard drive where he got two of them and he yeah. just kicked out for target, 30 of those yards that Maryland gained are because of Riley Bolo. Yeah. and I mean, MSU turned the ball over twice within the 10-yard line. I, the, those those could have easily resulted in at least a field goal, probably a touchdown in one of those. And the most annoying thing is that they have they have these plays and they're moving up and down the field in, the, in late second quarter, you know, early third, right, and the, or the third quarter really. And the one where Monty Medeiros tries to make an extra play. I, I, I at some point you think after five years the guy knows to go down after picking up a first down, setting up your team first and goal from the six. But he tried to be a hero and he gets sandwiched and just smacked to the turf by Maryland, by Maryland. Like Michigan would teach him a lesson, but Maryland let him get off the hook and got to give him a fumble. So imagine, imagine if he did that against Michigan. I would, I would, oh, you know how many people would call for Monty Medeiros' head? And the other one is Brian Lewerke on third and six with Donnie Corley. All he has to do is catch the ball and go into the end zone, puts it in his feet. That's Pop Warner. That's Pop Warner stuff right there. Oh yeah, and uh, I, as much as people want to say that, oh, it's a rivalry game and it's gonna be close. It's, it's not. not. It really isn't because. I'm sure that everybody on that Michigan team that played last year remembers the last 10 seconds of that game. And they didn't forget about it because that was the story of the year. It was the play of the year. And, I mean, the Michigan season went down the drain within a 10-second window. Oh, yeah. And they're finally going to get their chance to finally express how they feel. They're going to pay retribution. MSU is just, they're going to get their throats stomped on. And the only thing that, that left for Michigan to do really is show up. Yeah. Show up and then put Michigan's head, Michigan State's head on a stake. So when we come back, you'll hear us discuss some of that with Jack Ebling. We'll discuss last year's play. He wrote a book on it, The Perfect Ten, and what a book it is. Wonderful book, wonderful read. We'll discuss with Jack Ebling about his book. We'll talk about this year's fiasco that's going to be held at Spartan Stadium. There's the decapitation. There's the utter public slaughter. And just, just after that public slaughter, we'll talk about we'll talk with Jack Ebling just about his experiences as a football writer, uh, him covering the team for over 40 years. We'll talk with him when we come back. Welcome back, everybody. Casey Harrison here. And if you've heard of us before, then you've definitely heard of our special guest, Mr. Jack Ebling. Um, if you don't know Jack, he hosts the uh, Drive with Jack Ebling on 92.1. And he's also the author uh, with Joe Rexrode for The Perfect Ten. Um, so let's welcome Joe. Or, <laughs> I'm sorry, Jack. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Uh, happy to be here. And, uh, Jack, you... Let's just start you off with the, with questions about that perfect ten, and it's um, it, it'd be probably the most miraculous play I've ever seen. And you've been covering this team for forty years. Is that the play you think of? You know, your your coverage at the time as a sports writer. Well, this will be Michigan Michigan State game forty eight in a row for me. Oh, jeez. So uh, I haven't seen a play like that, and I've seen a lot of strange finishes, and I've seen a lot of 
Michigan State stunners over the years. There was a game in 1990. It was called Number One versus No One. Oh, yeah. Uh, there was another game when Michigan State intercepted seven passes and then went on and won a Rose Bowl, but no one saw it coming at the time. Uh, just about every time Michigan State has won in this series before Mark D'Antonio, it's been as an underdog. So strange things happen, but uh, I don't know if anything was uh, as unexpected as what happened last year in Michigan Stadium with 10 seconds left. But it was planned. It was something Michigan State rehearsed. It was something it prepared for. And never knew if they'd have a chance to use it, but those 11 guys in the Rangers went out there knowing what they were going to do, and Michigan allowed it to happen. I was talking to Dakari Willis this week, and he was telling me, he brought that up because someone had asked him, does he remember the play? And he's like, oh, of course I remember that play. And he goes, you know, me and Watts are, are good guys now. And he goes, did you read the book? That's the first thing he said after that. He's like, did you guys read the book? And he was all excited about it. And he, he goes, great, we have our own chapter in there. So you, you want to take me through, like, kind of how you structured that book and, and how you went about writing this and where that idea just you thought about writing just about that 10 seconds came from? Well, the idea began that night. I was uh, with my partner, Bluebelly Tom, who was – I had to worry about him slitting his wrist. But he was driving us home. <laughs> And we're stuck in a traffic jam in Ann Arbor, and he couldn't speak. And I'm looking out, and I'm seeing the reaction. I said, you know, somebody's got to somehow chronicle this because they're going to be showing this play. It's like the Cal Stanford band play or the kick six play with Auburn and Alabama. I said, we have to document exactly what happened this day. And then I, I called Joe, and I said, I need to talk to you about something, and we went through it. And I told him I had this idea for a book called The Perfect Ten, and he said, I'm 100% in. I didn't know at the time he was going to go and be a columnist in Nashville, Tennessee. But, <laughs> but uh, he said, you know, let's do it. And uh, came up with the idea of how we would format it. Uh, it turns out it starts with Mark D'Antonio on the bus on the way to the game, realizing that they've already played their game. They played it during the week in practice, and their best football was behind him, and he had to get him back somehow. He said, how am I going to do this? And so he wouldn't let him off the bus, and he held him there for he said, I want everyone for 10 seconds to think about how you're going to impact this game. Pray, meditate, do whatever you need to do. 10 seconds, how do you decide the outcome of this game? And when I interviewed him for the book, he said, I guess we got our 10 seconds back. <laughs> but right at the end of the game. So we go through that play, that day, and then we go back through the series, really uh, tension and hostility dating back to 1850. Then we take you through a little bit of Michigan State history into the D'Antonio era, all the things that set this up. And then we spend probably 125 pages on that play and that game, talking to every player who was on the field, uh, breaking down how Michigan blew it, uh, having gunners out there, having uh, the rugby punt, rolling guys the wrong direction. And everything that had to happen for Michigan State to pull it off happened. And then... The atmosphere in Michigan Stadium when it happened was unlike any I've oh, seen. Just, just graveyard. Oh, it was, uh, you know, Night of the Walking Dead as they came out of Michigan Stadium. And so we decided that we were going to chronicle this, and we ended the book with uh, 42 reactions from people whose lives were changed, including a lot of Michigan State students. And uh, that's a day that they will never forget. Some of them uh, collected on bets. Some of them are in uh, mixed families with Michigan brothers or sisters and all the crazy things. Even uh, the famous Surrender Cobra guy yeah. uh, from the University of Michigan, his sister, 
It was a Spartan, and she only reminds him of it every day. She bought the book for him. Oh wow! Yeah, <laughs> jeez. It was. Um, yeah, I I remember I was sitting in my dorm, and I had to go cover the riots over at Cedar Village because they were like, "All right, get over there to Cedar Village." About a minute to go in the game, and I tweeted out like, "Oh, it's uh, you know, it's great to see the rivalry back. Glad to see another team. You know, it's going to be a rivalry from here on out." And I. That play happened. I knocked over a chair and I tied my shoes. And I'm like, I gotta get to Cedar Village. It's gonna be crazy. And yeah, I remember right, racing over to Cedar Village and calling everybody. Everybody's calling me. My dad. My dad was at the game. Couldn't get through to him yet. But I get to Cedar Village and fans are just screaming "Beat Parbaugh" and like you know, singing the fight song. And I, it, one of the craziest, I think, just atmospheres for for anybody who went through it anywhere in the world at that point. Like, if you're a Spartan fan, because I remember there's a video of a guy sitting on the plane watching the game, and he's just freaking out in his seat. So, like, I, it, I it, couldn't even imagine that. It, like, really is, like, one of those moments that you just, you never forget where you are when that happens. I, uh, I was in Ann Arbor for it. I was going to go to the game. Uh, one of my friends that went there, she decided to, she, she told me that the ticket was going to be 50 bucks. I'm like, all right, sounds good. And then when I went to go buy the ticket, she's like, I changed my mind. It's 200 oh. And so knowing what I know now, I would have paid the 200 <laughs> But, I mean, at the time, I'm like, no, that's ridiculous. And so my roommate now, um, I went to go visit him. He lives in Ann Arbor. And we just we went to the sports bar to go watch the game. And uh, he, there was 10 seconds left on the clock. And I'm like, all right, I just got to see the clock hit zero. They're, they're lined up. I, I, just, I have to see this. He's like, whatever, I'll be in the car. And so he got up, and then the play happened. I'm like, John, John, no, you got to watch this. You got to watch this. We were the only two Michigan State fans in there. There was a couple others on the other side of the bar. We come up, we start hugging each other, jumping up and down, screaming, and everybody else just looks at us like we just killed a man. I mean, it was the absolute (laughs) biggest look of disgust I've ever gotten in my entire life, and I couldn't be any happier about that. That was was probably the highlight of my freshman year. But Uh now that... I mean, all that's worn off. And Jack, this this football team now is two and five. How did it really kind of get to that point? What what have you seen through um, the MSU football team this year? Well, it's really a perfect storm. Just about anything that could go wrong has gone wrong. First of all, Michigan State had a, a ton of attrition, maybe more than they realized. I don't think they understood exactly how much the loss of 118 starts on the offensive line with Jack Allen, uh, Donovan Clark, and Jack Conklin would mean. I don't think they understood uh, maybe Connor Cook's true value, although I don't think the quarterback play has been the worst part of this team. Uh, I don't think they realized uh, the loss in the defensive front and then the loss of a couple more players because of off-the-field issues, what that would mean. And I don't think they expected uh, really a rash of injuries at a lot of key spots. Certainly they didn't expect a disqualification from Malik McDowell at Indiana. At crunch time, they didn't expect... Riley Bullitt to get three personal fouls and a targeting call in the first quarter last week. So everything that could happen really has, and uh, you saw it. It's almost a, a shell shock look of panic. Uh, I never expected Mark Antonio would try the play called at the end of the first half last week. That was a terrible mistake. And there have been others. So it feeds on itself, and Michigan State needs to have something good happen. But right now, it's looking for that one thing it can hang its hat on. What does it do well? What is it going to make Michigan worry about? And right now, Michigan's biggest worry seems to be getting the bus to the stadium. <laughs> I, I can't see any conceivable way, and I put this in my column that will probably go up tomorrow. It's just there, 
the only way that they would need another divine intervention, almost the same way as Jalen Watts Jackson, if they're going to have any um, any sort of just way to win that game in a sense. Because there's, if you look at Michigan up up and down, Michigan hasn't had to worry really about anybody, and they haven't shown any mercy either. Right. And after the loss that they had last year at the hands of Michigan State and the way it went down, I, I can't see them hanging anything less than about 50 points on Michigan State. Well, the difference last year was uh, Michigan State was a better team and dominated that game. Uh, we say, well, it took a strange play at the end, but Michigan State had twice as many first downs, 20 to 10, had 156 yards more offense, 386 to 230, and really controlled play. And because of a couple of special teams plays and some other things that happened, drop passes, they wound up behind at the end of the game and needed uh, to have a bizarre play happen really for justice to be done. This time, you can't find one thing that Michigan State does better than Michigan. And it plays all right for a half. It's had leads, had leads into the second half, start of the fourth quarter. But in the fourth quarter, it's been a no-show. You go back to the Notre Dame oh, game. Yeah. Just the amount and, of points they've scored in this, or have given up in the second half is substantial. Yeah. How much they've given up in the first. So if you look at those things, you you see that uh, this team is going to have to have uh, some sort of a seismic change. You uh, you talked about the quarterback play a little bit. Um, what's your stance on it? Do you think that it's the right call going with Lewerke? I'm not in practice every day, and you know I, I have some ideas about what O'Connor's strengths are and what Terry's strengths are and what Lewerke's strengths are. But I think they have to go with their best healthy quarterback. And I know they wanted to play O'Connor last week, but he had a foot injury, couldn't play. Damian Terry's still banged up. So Lewerke is their healthiest quarterback. I don't think they're thinking about 2017. I don't think they're thinking about who's going to be our quarterback and we got to get him ready for the future. They're thinking about winning this week. What can we do to have a chance to win this week? And they're going to play the guy they think gives them the best chance to do that. The kind of uh, the response I've seen from a lot of Spartan fans, it's, it, it's kind of funny after you know two two Big Ten titles in three years, and some of the response I've seen is, well, if we just beat Michigan this year, it's a, it's an okay year. It kind of makes my year in a sense, and that almost seems to me like a cop out in a sense, where you've had all this, you've tasted a lot of the success, and and now you now you you go back to square one. That was kind of the early two thousands, where oh, if we just beat Michigan, it's a good year. Is there your thoughts on that, or is there? Well, they didn't go into the season thinking that. Right. The only thing that matters is beating Michigan. And sometimes Ohio State has gone into the season thinking the only thing that matters is beating Michigan. Uh, they care more about that than anything else. I think Michigan State, after the 36 wins in three years, actually thought, hey, we can get back to the college football playoff. Their team mantra was back-to-back, so they obviously thought they had a chance right. to win another Big Ten title. And if you think back, it wasn't that long ago, six weeks and Michigan State was number eight in the country, two and zero. Michigan was number six in the country, three and zero. And the Vegas line on the game was even. Now it's twenty three points and yeah. might go higher. So a lot has happened in a short period of time. You know, I was at one of the press conferences a couple weeks ago, and Coach D'Antonio talked about equity and how he thinks that he and the program have kind of built up equity um, and that fans will kind of stay the course. Um, do you think that he's built the equity, and do you think fans should be mad at him, or do you think that he's kind of protected by that? I think that uh, Michigan State has done things it's never done before. 
to go 36 and 5. That's 12 wins a year. It's the only school in the country that's had three top six finishes in the final poll. You look at the nine straight bowls. So he does have a lot of chips he can play. Unfortunately, he's playing quite a few of them right now. <laughs> and for a lot of fans, they'll say, okay, this is a bad year. He knew there was going to be a bad year. I remember four years ago, 2012, Michigan State went into the last game of the year at Minnesota, five and six. Yeah. Wound up winning that game and then winning the bowl game. I remember uh, seven years ago, that would be 2009, just before Kirk Cousins and that team took off with the back-to-back 11-win seasons, they finished six and seven and had a big fight over at Rayther Hall the night of the, of the football bust. So they have had steps back to go forward, and I think the fans didn't have to have a 12-win season, uh, but I don't think they expected a 4-8 and eight season. And that's what Michigan State's looking at right now if something doesn't change. If, uh, if they do end up going 4-8, and eight, do, you, do you see them making any kind of changes on the coaching staff? I think Mark D'Antonio would evaluate everything. He's, I'll tell you what he's not going to do. He's not going to fire a coach in the middle of the season and throw him under the bus. That's not the way he's wired. He's not in a cover-my-butt uh, mentality. You see that a lot of places around the country. Uh, when he talks about a family atmosphere and that stability being important, it's not lip service. He really means it. Now, after the season is over, do I think he'll evaluate things? Absolutely. Do I think he'll make some changes? Yes. But I don't think it's going to be we're firing anybody. Some people will find other jobs, and he'll help them do that. And he'll come out with a staff that he thinks is stronger. The same coaching staff, no exceptions, Last year won a Big Ten championship and uh, beat Michigan and beat Ohio State both on the road and made it to the college football playoff. So it's not like these guys took stupid pills and suddenly woke up and didn't know what a football shape was. Uh, A lot of things have happened, and they've made made some incredibly bad decisions. Uh, There was more defection, more attrition than they ever imagined, and uh, they've woken up with no confidence. This team has no swag. It has no confidence. Uh, they're looking for bad things to happen, and when you do that, they usually do. Speaking of uh, another, or people looking for coaching positions, there's a guy down the road, and P.J. Fleck down at Kalamazoo. Do you, and with talk about Brian Kelly probably be maybe leaving, being gone from Notre Dame, do you think P.J. Fleck could fit in at Notre Dame? Is he that kind of coach? Do you think, you think that's a spot he ends up at? Do you think he leaves Western after this year? I do think he leaves Western Michigan, and I think he should leave Western Michigan because one of the worst mistakes you can make in coaching is to stay at a program that has limitations. And, and Western might be as good as any program in the MAC, but it's still in the MAC. And this is an opportunity for him. If he waits and then they have a couple of 500 seasons, he's not going to be in position to get some of the jobs he's rumored for now. I wouldn't be surprised to see him at Houston next year when Tom Herman leaves. Uh, Rico Beard from our station thinks that he could wind up at Louisville. Bobby Petrino goes to LSU. Uh, Do I think P.J. Fleck is going to go to USC or Texas or Notre Dame? No, I don't think he's going to be a candidate for those jobs. Not to say he couldn't do it. It would be a leap of faith, and I don't think that's the direction those programs are going, but I do think he's going to have another chance very soon, and he's going to do a good job. What about a program like Purdue? Could you see him maybe going to a place like that? I could see him going to a place like Purdue, but I think he could do better than Purdue. 
I don't know that Purdue is ever going to be a power in the Big Ten West. Uh, I don't think it's going to be the equal of Nebraska, Wisconsin, Iowa. Now, could it contend with Northwestern? It has those kinds of resources. Maybe Minnesota. Uh, But I think that he can do better than Purdue, and if he has a uh, 14-0 season after the bowl game, he's going to be in position. You say, well, it's a Big Ten job. It's a big paying job, but it's also a potential dead-end job, and you don't want to be put in a, a position where you know, you're probably not going to ever make a bowl game there. And maybe he could. Maybe he'd do some things. But that's a lot of rowing of the boat. And, uh, you know, with the big game coming up this week, there's also, I mean, anything can happen. You, you saw it last week with Penn State taking on Ohio State. What does the current landscape of the Big Ten look like right now? And who do you think is going to come out going to the college football playoff? Well, I think the team that's played the best is Michigan. But Michigan has played six home games, one road game at Rutgers, which is like a JV team. So uh, I don't know that Michigan has been severely tested. They did play Wisconsin without the Badgers' best player, and Michigan won uh, late in the fourth quarter, 14-7. to Uh, Played a very different Penn State team than the one you saw now. Ohio State, I think, uh, was going to have a, a bump somewhere in the road because it's so many young players. And I think Ohio State with JT Barrett could beat Michigan. I also think if JT Barrett gets hurt, uh, it could lose three or four games. So Ohio State uh, you know, could beat Michigan, certainly in Columbus. Uh, I think Wisconsin, if it can win the West, has already proven it can play with Michigan on the road took Ohio State into overtime. That uh, might be a very interesting championship game if everyone's healthy. Wisconsin is uh, the surprise of the league to me. I, I, I never thought, especially given the schedule, they opened with LSU, and then they got Michigan State, Michigan, Ohio State, Iowa, Nebraska, five in a row, that the Badgers would be ranked in the top ten. So, you know, hats off to, to those guys. You know, where does Nebraska kind of fit in this conversation, too? Because I, I think they've kind of gone um, really uh, kind of out of sight, out of mind, in the sense that nobody's really talking about them all that much. Are they, are they pretenders this year? Because it, it, when I look at them and I, I think about Nebraska, and they, they, they almost don't impress me. I mean, the 7-0, seven, seven and oh, I mean, yeah, you, you went 7 straight, and you, you look good, but they, they haven't. They haven't shown anything that, that says that they're actually a top ten team to me. What's their best win? I, exactly. I you. <laughs> you know, they beat an Oregon team that can't get out of its own way and win an inner squad game. So, uh, you know, have they done what they're supposed to do? Yeah, but they get Ohio State and Wisconsin coming up, and you know, if they can split those games, then maybe they also have a game at Iowa. The end of the season is going to be problematic. Uh, I could see Nebraska surviving and actually winning the West. Are they the seventh best team in the country? Only if that country is Guatemala. <laughs> I mean, it's just <laughs> they wouldn't even be number one in Guatemala. Uh, no. <laughs> oh, well, uh, kind of changing the pace here. I, there is a basketball season coming quickly. Um, there's a lot of young guys on the team. What do you expect to see from guys like Miles Bridges, Cassius Winston, even a, a big guy in Nick Ward? 
I expect to see a learning curve, and it's got to happen fast because the first two regular season games are Arizona and Kentucky, and then Duke coming right after that. So uh, Michigan State's got to be ready to play right out of the chute. Got a lot of new players. Uh, has lost nine players from last year when you think of the four seniors and then Deontay Davis and then two transfers and then two guys injured. So nine guys who played last year or were going to play important roles this year are not there right now. They do have the best incoming class of the Izzo era. They have some other guys who I think are much improved. People will be very happy to see some of the improvement there. Uh, you're going to want to say you saw Miles Bridges while he's here because he's not going to be here long, mm-hmm. but you're going to be watching him for a long time. One of the most spectacular players Michigan State's ever had. Joshua Langford's going to be here longer, and I think uh, he might actually be more productive in his college career by the time it's over. And Nick Ward will surprise you. He's lost 23 pounds. He could still drop a couple, but uh, he can do some things. Got to stay out of foul trouble. I think he might average more than four fouls a game. That's going to be bad news for Michigan State. Uh, but I think there's some other guys on this team uh, who are, are really going to make you say, wow, that guy's a little bit better than I thought. And Cassius Winston and Tum Tum Nairn Jr., I think, will get it done at the point guard position. They're very different kinds of players. Tum Tum is a much better player than he was a year ago. And Cassius Winston is a rare passer. Tom is always talking about him and, I don't know how many sets of eyes he has, but he uses them all when he has the basketball. So it's going to be an exciting season. I think by the time the Big Ten rolls around, Michigan State will be a very competitive team nationally. And I just saw something today from Dick Vitale, and he has Michigan State sixth in the nation, which is a little higher than most people have thus far, but he's projecting to the end. And, uh, you know, it wouldn't surprise me to see Michigan State right there in the Elite Eight and a chance to play for a Final Four. I've seen a lot you know, from Tum Tum and, and, and having talked to Izzo a little bit and some of the other guys, Tum seems to be the, the glue of that team in a sense where he's, he's well-spoken. And he seems to be, I think he was, was he, I think he was instrumental in bringing some of those guys there. And I think he's, he's, isn't he the guy that they, they take on recruiting visits and things like that? He's a guy that all the players stay with when they come on their officials. Mm-hmm. You know, he's their escort for every, every guy that comes in. So who, uh, who's your, you know, it's Tum. So, uh, he's a he's a team leader. Draymond Green told Tom Izzo when Tom was a freshman. He said, "If you ever had a freshman captain, you want to consider having this guy your captain." Tom said, "Really?" I said, "Yeah, he's that kind of leader, and he is." And I was in the locker room ahead of most of the people last year for Associated Press, and he was a respected leader even on that team, even with Zell and Bryn and Costello and Kobe Wallenman. So. Uh, he's a guy who can do a lot of things. He's healthy now. Last year, he, he was never more than 80%. His shot is never going to be NBA-worthy, but at least now they're not playing four against five, which they did a lot last year. So uh, he's the one-man fast break, and I think that uh, combined with Cassius Winston, it's going to be a headache for teams, two very different kinds of players. I think the the other thing with with Tom too is a, is a, his defensive ability. I remember watching the the Louisville game and you know I, I'm covering it and he, I think he he had missed messed up a play and then right Louisville's coming down and he steals the ball before the guy goes up for a layup and turn the turn the complexion of that first half around and they ended up I think taking the lead in in, the, in that game but it was all Tom Tom's speed and, and and his defensive ability I think is some things that people often overlook is just how good he is defensively. 
Yeah, I think uh, Tum Tum is uh, the best defensive player on the team, and Tom Izzo is a defensive-minded coach, as you've seen. That comes first, but he can do a lot of different things if there were was a deficiency with this team, aside from depth in the post. I don't know that the outside shooting is proven the way it was last year with Forbes and Valentine, but it might surprise you to know that Aaron Harris shot nearly 44% last year from three, or that Matt McQuaid and Alvin Ellis shot better than 40%. So when those guys get a rhythm and get a little bit more playing time, I think they can shoot the ball, uh, and Miles Bridges can shoot the ball, and Joshua Langford can shoot the ball. But if they have openings because of those other players, then you really might see them knock down some shots. And that was exactly the thing I was going to talk about. I was going to talk about Alvin Ellis and McQuaid. The fact that once they're through with this gauntlet of a non-conference schedule and they're in Big Ten play, I mean, they could easily trek through the Big Ten and probably be the best team. I know Wisconsin's got a couple good players, but in terms of finishing in the Big Ten, I think MSU is definitely in the top two. I think Wisconsin could be very good. Uh, got a lot of guys back from a team that acquitted itself well in the postseason last year. So I would expect Wisconsin to be right there. A lot of people like Indiana. I think Michigan has a chance to be pretty good. Uh, Purdue, a lot of size up front with Haas and Swanigan. So it would be very competitive in the Big Ten. They'll be a very good team in that league, finish sixth. Uh, and it could be a team that finishes fifth or sixth in the league that goes further than any of the others in the Big Ten tournament. Uh, Tom Izzo has been through this enough times now. Uh, he knows that playing these kinds of games early help late. He can be exposed to all different styles. So uh, I would expect Michigan State to make the most of this, this opportunity. It wouldn't surprise me to see them beat Arizona and Kentucky. It wouldn't surprise me to lose to both those teams. I have a hard time imagining how they beat Duke at Cameron Indoor Stadium. But other than that, I don't think there's a game on the schedule that they can't win. And, you know, I mean, before we finish this out, there is a World Series going on. Um, Stevens Cubbies making it for the first time since 1945. And, you know, the Indians haven't made it in quite some time either. Um, who, do you, who do you have for that series? I think you have to look at the Cubs as, as having the, be, the best team. They've been the best team all season. The Indians are hot. Uh, I heard tonight this will be the first time that the Cubs have ever had a, a black player play in a World Series. Huh. So that tells you something about how long it's been. <laughs> Dexter Fowler will be the first. And when you look at that, you look at uh, the way the, the Cubs have been built, you look at the long-suffering Cubs fans, uh, I don't have quite as much sympathy for the people who suddenly jumped on the bandwagon and they think it's the coolest thing in the world to be a Cubs fan. But uh, you see that happen. And, and there's just as much frustration in Cleveland. Yeah, the Cavs won. But the Indians haven't won a World Series since 1948. So there's going to be one very happy fan base and one miserable one. I, uh, I, I kind of call it Tiger Syndrome because they've had almost a week and a half off since they last played a game. And you think that could also be a, a really big determining factor in the sense that you don't get that playing time, you don't get those reps, and when you're playing a team that just got off playing a six-game series, um, that could mean trouble for the Indians. Cleveland did one of the coolest things last night. I don't know if you guys heard, but they played a game. 
a progressive feel. And they opened it up, and they let people come in. And it was a, a love-in, but a lot of people showed up to salute the team and watch them play. And where Indians fans could never afford a World Series ticket or could never get one, they did have a chance to see the team. While I guess a ticket in Wrigley Field now, a decent seat, and I'm talking about front row box, is going for ten grand. Yeah, ten thousand for one ticket. All right. Well, I uh, I think that'll do it for this. Uh, we'd like to thank Jack for coming out and taking the time out of his busy day to come visit us. Once again, you can check out his book, The Perfect Ten. Um, you can get that at a retailer near you. Jack, any final thoughts? Yeah, I want to thank you guys. Uh, it's kind of fun to watch the next generation, the guys I'm going to be working with in a couple of years. Looking forward to that. Uh, anything I can do to help you guys, uh, you, you talked about the book, and 10perfectseconds.com is the website. And uh, next door here at SBS... Uh, Saturday morning, Joe Rexroad is making his triumphant return from Tennessee. Oh so he'll be f- here from 9 to 11 signing books with us. And I uh, hope to see everybody. I think you're going to want to savor the moment of uh, last year's win. Uh, there might not be so many other moments to savor from this Saturday. Once again, we'd like to thank him. And when we come back, we're actually going to break down the World Series game by game. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, in case you didn't know, there's only four more wins left in the Major League Baseball season before one major drought ends. Now, one can be the drought, the one that everybody's been talking about. Uh, when the river ran dry in 1908, that is when the Cubs last won the World Series. Or there's another drought if you go out to Cleveland. and But that river ran dry in 1948 when the Indians last won a World Series. Um, one of those is going to come to an end and one of them is going to keep suffering. And I think is, this is the year of the Cubs. I, I like the Indians. I oh, told so, you. So, so you're admitting it? Yes. Oh, for, the Indians. Oh, why, why did it take you so long, buddy? I like to just yank your chain. I uh, think the Cubs were the best team going into the playoffs. You know I like to rattle you, buddy. That's true. But, uh, you wouldn't have a show if you didn't rattle me. I, I mean, listen, I told you back in the middle of the summer that the Indians were the best team in the American League. You did. I, I kind of jumped on the Blue Jays bandwagon a little bit, but I was burned. Um, I, I bought into the fact that they were a really hot-hitting team. But the Indians kind of did it all on the American League side. They, they can pitch, they can hit. And you know what? If anything's going for them, they've got home field advantage because of the weird, wacky um, all-star game system. Yeah, the worst, and worst. They have Danny Salazar, who's he could be the difference maker in the World Series, um, because I would give advantage Cubs in terms of starting rotation, and really you don't even need five starting pitchers in the World Series. You can easily no. go four, and when you got Lester, Arietta, Hendricks, and uh, the the what's what's that other guy? Um, Lackey. Yeah. And I, I, I mean, the Indians, they're pretty good. I think they're a little bit better offensively, but it's, it's going to come down to who can, I, I, this sounds cliche, but who can score the most runs? They're going to be low-scoring games, and they're, they're not going to really run up the score because the Indians can pitch. They've got Corey Kluber, who's arguably the best pitcher in the American League, and once, the, once you get past the five or six innings, that bullpen is so dominant, especially when you get guys in the back end of the bullpen 
like Cody Allen and you get um, Miller. Those are guys that are locked down. I mean, that's like, you think Aroldis Chapman is good, but those two guys in the back of the bullpen can basically assure a win. Yeah. It's probably going to be the best World Series in my lifetime. Oh, yeah. By far. This will be the first one that I think, I mean, besides my Cubs being in it and, and whatnot, I mean, I, I wasn't even excited about the Tigers matchups other than the Tigers were there. But, I like, but I'm genuinely, genuinely excited about who the Cubs have to play. Oh yeah, like I I I didn't want it to be easy. Like imagine if the Cubs like the it was Cleveland had walked in there walked in here after winning a bunch of game sevens on like a walk off home run and they just they just looked bad but they were still winning. Oh yeah, like and, and the Cubs were going in sweep. Yeah, as much as that would put like my fears to rest and I would probably stop my beating heart, you know, from going nine thousand miles a minute. I'd rather have a competitive series to prove that the Cubs win isn't wasn't a, isn't a fluke that everybody else is just bad and the Cubs just had the right team at the right time. I wanted to prove that the, the Cubs could do it, and they have so far. They beat Madison Bumgarner, and they've also beaten Clayton Kershaw. Oh so, yeah. So like they they can they've proven they can do it, and that, now the final hurdle, and I think all the magic is there on the Cubs side. I I think the final hurdle is just can they take one win from Cleveland and can they take the three at home? Because I think I think Chicago at home is probably better than Cleveland at home. Yeah, I, I would argue that Wrigley Field is going to be the most nervous place, the most excited place in in all of probably sports venues for the you know, the past a hundred and something years. Oh yeah, and so uh, when I look at I, you know John John Lester Corey Kluber game one, it, I, I'm picking I'm picking Lester. The guy's on fire. Oh yeah, it, it, he's a lefty. Guy's on fire, and then I, I'm still like, is there, bad as Eddo's been? Trevor Bauer. I mean, I, it's just is his finger healed yet. <laughs> he's he's only got half a pinky, so, so like I, I don't know whether if, that if he'll even make it through game two. If he can even escape an inning and a third, um, so I, I would think John Lester wins it with his defense game one. And if the Cubs are going to win, it's because Trevor Bauer is just still off his game, and Jake Arrieta will give up his runs. But I think Trevor Bauer will give up enough, or the, will give up enough runs where the Cubs are able to chase him out. And so I, that would be my picks for game one and two, and then. You know, it's always hard to, to put away a team, even when you're at home, and they're going to have some of that, you know, that anxiety. And I th- but Kyle Hendricks still pitching out of his mind too, so um, I might pick him to go up three zero, but lose game four, and because I could just see it, because it's uh, um, you know it's John Lackey, but it, he's probably the roughest of the of the four. So if they were going to lose this game four to stave off elimination, um, but game five, I would pick the Cubs again. Oh yeah, I, I can't. It's going to be Lester again, so I can't see. Uh, and that's the thing about the Cubs is they're four deep instead of three in that rotation. Oh yeah. And so, you know, I, I have to pick the Cubs. It's not just because I'm a fan, but because it just feels like the Cubs' year. You go down two to one, and you, your bats explode out of nowhere after being dead for so long, and then the way they won game uh, game five at home against the Dodgers. Uh, just magic, just pure magic, and we've also set up a GoFundMe account for uh, for me and Casey to go to the World Series. Uh, tickets are only about seven eighty in Cleveland. Oh like yeah, four hour drive. We'll we'll pay for the gas, we'll pay for the food, we'll pay for the hotel as long as you pay for our tickets. I'm actually uh, I'm actually <laughs> just uh, selling my soul because that's about how much it costs to go to the one of those games. Uh, there's uh, seven eighty seven hundred eighty dollars for standing room only in Cleveland. I when I was there with my family this year, Siren, um, in Cleveland, we sat in section four uh, four seventy. Two, I believe it was up in Cleveland. Um, you know, it's like the it's the mezzanine level of the upper deck. You know, I was, I was right on the front row, right? Beautiful seats. This place is it's pretty cool to see a game, but the rest of the tickets right now, standing room only. There ain't no way you guys sit down. Oh, and, that, and then the, the Wrigley prices are, are, are even more through the roof. And I'm just, I'm just excited. Win or lose, 
that World Series, Chicago is going to be up in flames. Oh, yeah. Well, oh. let's think about this, too. Um, yeah. That, I mean, it's always it's actually the winning city that actually has the riots more often than the losing city, believe it or not. Oh, and yeah. And so it's... Um, uh, I wouldn't expect Cleveland to burn because it's not a baseball town. Oh, to no. To be honest with you. Um, Chicago probably they, will. They were... I mean... Be, it'll be really sad to see because you, you want everything to be clean. But Wrigleyville, I don't think will... Wrigleyville will not burn down just because of how many people are going to be excited. I don't think people are going to flip cars over in now, Wrigleyville. But, because it's too, way too close to Wrigley. <laughs> they, they burned down Wrigley State. <laughs> I, uh, I I know how you feel about Rickley fans field. rushing the field. Oh, now, no, is, I, I hope is that appropriate? No, it's not for the fans it's, to it's, rush it's, the field if the Cubs clinch at home. No, it's not at Wrigley. That's not appropriate you want, you for want, you. You want, you want it's not about the fans I mean, as much as it is about Chicago and whatnot. Like, I, if I'm a player, like, yeah, I want to win for the city, but I want to celebrate with my teammates. I don't want four randos mobbing me trying to steal my hat that I wore from games, game whatever of the World Series. To be honest with you, I'd want to keep half that stuff. I don't know, like, I'd rather they're gonna have a party in the stands. You but know? what do you expect, though? I expect the fans to I, just I, flood I, the I field. Don't. I think they're gonna have plenty of precautions for it. I think they'll let them on the field after, like for like presentation of like the trophy and whatnot. That that might be a little. It's very dangerous because you don't know how crazy some of these fans are. You oh know? yeah. Like and, and that causes such a fire hazard with people running down for the stairs. Like there's there's like ninety year like you've heard, you've seen that on TV. They feature that one ninety year old lady the whole time. Imagine someone climbing over that old lady to get through the dugout. Like oh, like you know like I don't want anybody to die in that in that game. Another thing I wanted to talk about is Kyle Schwarber because I'm I'm going through MLB.com right now and they just said that he was added to the roster and he might start as DH in game one. Uh, he's traveling with the team. It's still unclear if he's actually on the on the roster. But if he does, I mean, he hasn't had reps in, like in, in a Major League game since the third game of the Major League Baseball season. And <laughs> is is he ready? Is Does he make an impact for the Cubs? Kyle Schwarber, uh, I think that's a little dangerous of a game to be playing with Kyle Schwarber. I know his bat's hot and he's good, and but he hasn't. He hasn't played since what game like five of the of the out of one hundred and sixty-two. Oh, he played in game three, and uh, he just had a rehab stint where he played in an Arizona Fall League game. He went one for three with a double. See, it's a, it's a dangerous thing because you don't want to mess with the Cubs' mojo. And I know Kyle Schwarber is a, a loved guy down there in that locker room, but it, what they're what they're doing right now, Jorge Soler is is more than capable of you know of playing that DH spot, and I think Kyle Schwarber would maybe maybe it would provide a a a boost, you know, a, a moral boost, a mental boost. But think about it. I think I don't think Kyle Schwarber is the answer, and I don't know if throwing him in there is the right thing to do in a sense. I I just feel like as much as maybe the numbers make sense, it almost doesn't make sense you know, human wise. Oh yes. yeah, and I mean Soler is hitting two thirty eight this year, and your other alternative is Chris Coglin. But Chris Coglin, I mean, you can get him for a bag of balls. He's, he's only he hitting two sixty. Offense this year, I, I, he, he, he 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 was good, but um, nothing extraordinary. I think, I, think I don't know if Kyle Schwarber like hurts them in a sense where it's detrimental, but I don't think he, I don't think he helps substantially any different than Jorge Soler would just based on the time he's been out. And I want to bring this up right now because I'm looking at it. Uh, you know Washington State football program, right? Mm-hmm. Head coach Mike Leach uh, has actually weighed in on uh, on the Cubs and the Indians and why he is uh, rooting for the Indians and uh, explain why Cubs fans bother him. So I'd like to talk about this real quick. Uh, it's an ESPN article by Kyle uh, Bonagura. Um, every, this is words from Mike Leach. He doesn't like how the, the team is referred to as my Cubbies. 
is how I've said it on this program. Every yuppie with a BMW or with some special treatment or special attachment to his computer. Wow, that fits you perfectly. Yeah, good one. Or some designer set of jeans or something like that that is a Cubs fan and refers to them as my Cubbies, Leach said. And I think there are too many out of the woodwork people that like them that like them because they like the uniforms. Don't know the first thing about baseball. Probably have never attended a Cubs game. Uh, I don't fit this description. One, I'd like to, but he's probably probably right, and that could be said for any major uh, cities, teams, the Yankees, Red oh, Sox. Yeah. Um, but and it's weird because you're hearing me in a, a Michigan area talk about how they're my Cubs, but you've heard this story over and over again. I explained it on one podcast. I grew up with a Cubs stuffed animal in my crib. Like, that doesn't happen just because, oh, my dad's a yuppie and he likes... No, my dad went to school in Chicago. What are you doing? It's free time. He went to Cubs games. $10 bleacher seats, buddy. Like, and so what have I grown up? He's been a fan his whole life. He goes back to games. I haven't been in a long time because, frankly, I've played... I've done so much in my time, I haven't had time to go. I can't afford to go on my own. So, screw Mike Leach. Uh, that's all I have to say. Um, he's not talking to me, but that's all I want to say. Casey? Oh. Well, uh... I think we've had a pretty good show today. Uh, remember to check us out on all of our social media platforms, Twitter, Facebook, and SoundCloud. Re- leave a review for us on iTunes. Steven, any final thoughts? No, uh, just uh, go Cubs go tonight. And uh, we'll, see you on, uh, we'll see you on Thursday. Hopefully we'll have another special guest for you. That's in the works. We won't reveal who it is. Maybe, we, maybe we'll tell you in a, uh, maybe in the middle of the week in a tweet or so or a Facebook post, but we can't reveal it for now. And uh, one more thing. If you, uh, if you have any questions for us, feel free to tweet us or you can email us. You can email Stephen at stephen.olshansky at statenews.com. You can email me at sports at statenews.com or casey.harrison at statenews.com. Or you can follow us on Twitter, send us a DM. Um, you can follow me. My handle is at C Harrison TSN. And then Steven, what's yours? Uh, my handle is S Oshansky. Yeah, it's a good Polish name. You're probably gonna have trouble spelling that. So I'll spell it all for you. S it's capital S. Capital O L S C H A N S K I. That's S Oshansky. And, uh, that's on Twitter. So. Can you use it in a sentence, please? Uh, no. <laughs> Steven Oshansky. <laughs> and my email, Steven dot Oshansky is Steven with a PH. At Stephen.Oshansky at statenews.com. We'll see everybody on Friday.